We continue our worship of our risen Savior this morning now by, by hearing God's word proclaimed. So please open with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians. If you're using one of your, our, our pew Bibles, you can find Philippians on page 980. 980. To remind you, this summer we're covering eight of Paul's letters in eight weeks, eight overview sermons. Our, our aim and, and prayer for this summer would, that it would give us a grand vision of what the Bible calls us to, to be and to do as the church. And, and today we come to the message of Philippians, joy in Christ. Before we read, though, uh, let's pray for God's help in the hearing and the proclaiming of, of his word. Let's, let's pray. Father, it is right for us to pause before we read of your word to ask of your help. That the same spirit that, that inspired this word to the Apostle Paul and his writing to the church at Philippi would now illuminate it to our hearts and minds to understand Lord, that the glorious, risen, exalted Christ that he spoke of would be real to us. That we would see him in all his beauty, in his humility. And Lord, that we as a church would know the joy that comes in Christ. A joy that endures through all circumstances. A joy that will be eternal. We pray this for our joy and your glory. Amen. Well, there's a, a Chinese proverb that goes like this. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. But if you want happiness for a lifetime, well, I'm, I'm not going to answer the sentence. I'm, I'm more curious. How would you finish that sentence if you want happiness for a lifetime, what? What do you think is the secret to enduring happiness? Happiness that, that we might call joy, that is constant through all of life's varied difficulties, circumstances. And it's an important question. All men seek happiness without exception. We were all created to seek happiness. It's, it's part of our innate desires to be happy and to, to seek those things in life that we think will lead to our happiness. Think of your own past week. I'm sure you can think of examples of decisions that you've made, money and time spent, because in your way, you thought that they would bring you happiness in the end. Are you happy? Or better, are you joyful? All Christians can testify that we have found joy in a surprising place, a place that the world is blind to. And that joy, the joy that Christians have, endures through all of life, even through its, its greatest trials. And this morning, the, the book of Philippians shows us the source of that joy. Paul writes this letter from, from prison, and he's considering the possibility of his own execution, but maybe no letter in the Bible is so brimming with joy. The occasion of the letter is, 
is recognition and thanks for the gift that the Philippian church has sent to him in Rome to support him in prison. Paul had had planted the church at Philippi in in modern-day Greece some maybe 12 years earlier. But they continued to, to support him through gifts all these years. So he, he writes to, to thank them, but, but the substance of the letter is Paul's commendation of, of such partnerships with joy in Christ for mutual progress in the gospel. That'll be our main idea this morning, our attempt at the whole book summarized in one sentence. What does Paul aim to teach in this short letter? It's this, humbly partner together with joy in Christ for mutual progress in the gospel. Humbly partner together with joy in Christ for mutual progress in the gospel. Philippians in one sentence. In these four chapters, Paul will report with joy how the the gospel is advancing. Not despite, but but even through his imprisonment. And he exhorts the Philippians to, to continue to grow in humility, unity, maturity. All with, with confidence that Christ saves by faith and not by works. And throughout the, uh, the letter, by example, Paul's own example, and, and by command, rejoice, Paul calls all Christians to know a joy that, that lasts a lifetime. In the book, joy is the, the seasoning that brings all the other ingredients of the, the letter into a, a flavorful meal. Joy in Christ. Humbly partner together with joy in Christ for mutual progress in the gospel. We're going to work through the letter in four points today, roughly following the four chapters. First, joyfully suffer for Christ. That's in chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 26. Second, joyfully stand with Christ. 127 all the way through 2. Third, joyfully, the joyful sufficiency of Christ in chapter 3. And finally, joyful strength of Christ in chapter 4. Chapter 4. Joyfully suffer for Christ. Joyfully stand with Christ. Joyful sufficiency of Christ. And joyfully strength of Christ. Let's start by reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 in our first point. Joyfully suffer for Christ. Philippians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Well, as is true of so many of Paul's letters, we see so many of the themes of the, the letter right here in these first verses. You see there in verse 1 that this letter is from from Paul with Timothy. Timothy is one of Paul's closest co-workers, a a partner with him in his missionary journeys. And and Timothy has has been with Paul when he planted the the church at Philippi. And he would be sent back to Philippi by Paul to, to hear more news of how that church is doing. Note also there in verse 1 that he's writing to, to the saints, 
in Christ Jesus. Every Christian is a saint. It it means to be holy. And all who are in Christ Jesus by faith are made holy by Him. There is no special class of, of holier Christians, the saints. No, all Christians are, are saints. In verse 3, note the reason he writes. To share with them the thanks that he gives to God for them in, in prayer. And we see there in verse 4, the, the first mention of, of joy. His prayer with joy. Verse 4 gives us the reason for his prayer of thanks with joy. And another theme of the letter, right? In verse 5 he says, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We'll see it in more detail later in the letter. But, but the church of, at Philippi had, had sent a gift to Paul in Rome by way of a messenger. And likely their pastor, Epaphroditus. And this is just the latest in a long string of of ways the saints in Philippi have have supported their father in the faith, Paul. But Paul directs his thanks first and foremost here, not to the saints, but to God. Next time you thank someone, give thanks to God first. And this is our, our first clue Of where joy comes from. Happiness for a lifetime. Well it comes for Paul here in in thankfulness. And partnership in the gospel. In verse 6 Paul addresses another theme of this letter. That we're going to see throughout. Progress in the gospel. Pressing on to maturity. He has confidence there in verse 6. That that God who began a work in them. In these saints through Paul's ministry. Will bring that work to completion. Unlike that item on your to-do list that's been on there far too long, God doesn't start work and and drop it because he got bored or it got too hard for him. The certainty of this work being finished lies not with us, not with the saints at Philippi, but with God himself. He completes the work in us. He is the author and perfecter of faith. But, verse 6, it won't be done in this lifetime, right? Paul says that it'll happen at the day of Jesus Christ. In in other words, at at Jesus' second coming, at the the end of this age. So, Christian, your entire life is to be about what Paul will later call pressing on toward the goal. In verse 7, Paul justifies his thanks, his joy, his confidence... Because of his affection for this church. And that affection because they participate with him in grace. The the gift from God. This undeserved gift there in in verse 7. Is not only the salvation they share between Paul and the the saints. but, But the display of their participation with him in his imprisonment. And his defense and confirmation of the gospel. There in verse 7 then is the the first reference in the letter to to his imprisonment. Another major theme of this letter. And though the Philippians are are hundreds of miles away, they're they're in Greece, he's in in Rome, in Italy. They participate with him by way of gift and and messenger in the work that that Paul is doing. 
The Philippians would be familiar with the threat of imprisonment by Roman authorities. In Acts 16, we learn that that Paul was thrown into prison in Philippi because he was accused of of teaching customs that that were not lawful for, for Romans to practice. Likely worship of Jesus rather than than Caesar. But but Paul understands this imprisonment there in verse 7 as as an opportunity. An opportunity to defend and confirm the truth of the gospel. In Rome, Paul will have to undergo trial. He'll make a a legal defense in court. And he knows that, that in the end, the gospel will be vindicated. Well, and then the next few verses that we didn't read, Paul, Paul reaffirms his affections and prayers for them. He prays for their, their love and knowledge and to be, to be blameless and righteous, for, for abundant growth for this church in Philippi. And why? Well, look at the, the last phrase in, in verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. This is like what we saw in in Ephesians last week and in chapter 1, right? Do you remember three times God's blessing of us was to the praise of God's glorious grace? The the center of of God's reason for blessing in Ephesians 1, of of answering prayer here in Philippians 1, is His own glory to the glory and praise of God. God acts for His own name's sake. And this is not the ego of, of a proud man. It is, it is exactly what is appropriate for a being like our God. Our triune God is the only being in the universe for whom it is appropriate to be self-centered. You know, when, when God acts for His own glory, He is doing exactly what He calls all creatures to do, to put Him at the center And that's exactly the attitude Paul in this letter has toward God. In his imprisonment, not self-centered, but suffering for Christ. And thinking in that imprisonment, what is best for others? Paul, imprisoned in Rome, we understand this to be the imprisonment at the the end of the book of Acts. He was arrested simply for, for preaching Christ. And appealed to Caesar. He, he wanted to be examined by the highest authority in the empire. So through a series of events at the end of the book of Acts, he makes it to Rome and his imprisonment there to, to stand trial. We read in the, the last chapter of Acts that, that though he was in, in chains, chained to a guard and confined to a house, he was free there to proclaim the gospel to, to all who came to him. Well, let's read Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14, of of his attitude in his imprisonment. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word Without fear. So what's Paul's attitude toward his imprisonment? It's not the the tragic end to a brilliant career. Or the restriction of a gifted apostle. Or an outrageous injustice against the Roman citizen. No, it's the advancing of the gospel. It is for Christ. 
It is making brothers bold to speak without fear. The last few verses of of Acts give Luke's final report of, of Paul's imprisonment. Where Luke writes this, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Without hindrance in prison. One commentator helps us imagine how it might have been for Paul in prison. Imagine a guard coming on duty to to be chained to Paul, to to watch him. This guard had had no idea who Paul is, so he asked Paul the most common question directed at prisoners, why are you in chains? Well, Paul's answer, we can imagine, would be Christ-centered. I am in chains because I belong to Christ. I serve Christ. Jesus Christ, in humility and obedience to God's will, died for our sins on a Roman cross under Roman power. Jesus Christ is now the risen and exalted Lord above all powers, even Caesar. And that Christ called me to proclaim the good news about him to all nations. Christ is the Savior of all who trust in him. And one day everyone will recognize and worship Christ as the Lord of all. Well, as those guards cycle through asking Paul again and again, why are you in chains? They all come to hear of Christ. Paul is not ultimately in the custody of Caesar. He is a prisoner for Jesus. Paul is in prison at the sovereign bidding, not of Caesar, but of his king. So that the gospel would push past the defenses of a, of a seemingly impenetrable group of people. The imperial guard. And not only that, but, but in verse 14, his example is encouraging others. They are seeing how, how God is using Paul's imprisonment. And so other brothers to speak the gospel without fear. Without fear. Yes, Paul is suffering. He's suffering under the, the tyranny of unjust rulers. But that is no obstacle to God and the advance of the gospel. We see Paul in prison so God-centered and gospel-focused, he rejoices in his imprisonment. It's not about him and his comfort. It's about the gospel advancing. And in fact, he even rejoices when when Christ is proclaimed by by false teachers. In verses 15 through through 17, he he speaks of some who are, are preaching the true message. They are preaching Christ but are doing so with false motives. He describes them as being motivated by envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. But what does Paul say of this? Only that in every way Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. Does that sound like you? Do you have this kind of of singular focus to consider in, in every circumstances what is good for the gospel. Not me, not my comfort, but, but the gospel. Does that kind of attitude mark our church? A singular focus on the advance of the gospel 
in whatever circumstances. As we detox from 2020, may this still be the the focus of our body together. In every way, Christ proclaimed, and in that we rejoice. In the rest of of chapter 1, Paul considers whether or not his his imprisonment will lead to his his death, his his execution. Look at, at verse 19. He, he knows, there at the end of verse 19, that, that this will turn out for his deliverance. Well, that confidence, he, he's not confident that, that he'll be delivered from prison. We know that because at the end of verse 20, he wants to honor Christ, whether by life or by death. I think by deliverance in verse 19, he means salvation. His confidence is is not that he's going to get out of jail, but but he's rejoicing in the the certainty of his salvation. No matter what happens before Caesar, ultimately he will not be ashamed. And he might even honor Christ by death, but be saved. As he goes on in the the rest of chapter 1, he he really does think his imprisonment may end in his his execution, and he, he welcomes it. Read with me, chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's maybe one of Paul's most memorable lines from from all of his letters. Paul has, has such a singular focus that to him, life is Christ. Christ completely defines the meaning of life. If you're joining us this morning and and you're not a Christian, how would you fill in that line? To live is blank. To live is blank. What is the meaning of life? Family? Career? Leaving the world better than you came into it? Maybe even happiness? Or joy. I wonder, are all those things all they've chalked up to be? Are they ultimately satisfying? Paul here in in prison knows the satisfying purpose of of life. And so satisfying that it it goes past death. Paul's desire is, is to be with Christ. The Bible teaches that that at death, the spirit of the dead are with Christ immediately. But he he goes on to say that he is certain that he will stay because it is necessary, in verse 25, for their progress and joy in the faith. And in verse 26, cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul and his imprisonment, not thinking of what's best for him, what he wants, to, to die and be with Christ, but, but thinking of what's best for others and what's for the glory of God. In prison, facing possible execution, but his joy and purpose is the gospel advancing and the progress of saints in the faith. Certainly, Paul suffered throughout his ministry he goes so far in 2 Corinthians 11.23 to, to claim that he was in prison more than, than any other apostle. But was that, was that an obstacle to the gospel? Did all those imprisonments stop the advance of God's church? 
No, friends, Paul's joyful suffering for Christ here in, in chapter 1 is, is another example of God using what is weak. God using suffering, God using evil to accomplish his aims. And is, is Paul's experience so different from Christ? Didn't God use weakness, suffering, and, and evil in Christ's life to accomplish the greatest good ever? Our salvation? And so it is true for us, brothers and sisters. God uses your weakness, your suffering, evils committed against you for his gracious purpose and aims for his glory. So as we think of Paul in prison, seeing that this is being used by God to advance the gospel, we must remember that nothing we suffer is meaningless. And nothing we suffer threatens our soul. This will turn out for your deliverance, your salvation, and the progress of the gospel. That is, is certain. And because of, of that certainty, we too can have, have a joy like Paul's that, that endures in all circumstances. So while we, we may suffer, Paul's charge for us this morning is to joyfully stand with Christ. So let's move to our, our second point, joyfully stand with Christ, starting in chapter 1, verse 27, and all the way through chapter 2. Starting in 127. I, I think 127 is, is the thesis statement of the book and, and begins the heart of his argument to the Philippians. So, so read with me Philippians 1, verse 27. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Well, what does it mean for Paul, for us to live lives worthy of the gospel? Well, first, it doesn't mean to earn it. To to live worthy is our response to the gospel, not our, our reason for receiving it. No, it's by grace we have been saved. But he says a worthy life in response to that gospel is is a life standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for faith, the faith of the gospel. I think that the spirit he refers to there in verse 27 is, is the Holy Spirit, the one spirit we have together with every believer. A worthy life is marked by unity, agreement, and in working with one another for the progress of the gospel. And not just with, with people in, in general, but, but unified in our striving in the local church. So, brothers and sisters, do, does that mark your participation in the local body? For your part, are you standing firm in the shared Holy Spirit? Are you working alongside others here for the progress of the gospel? Paul imagines Roman soldiers marching forward in lockstep for the advance of the empire, but not an empire of this world. You know, the the ESV, the the translation I'm reading from, actually hides something by its translation in verse 27. 
You might notice, if you have the ESV, a little one there by the word worthy in verse 27. If you look at the bottom of the page for, for note one, right, it says that this can be translated, only behave as citizens worthy. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's, that's a bit more literal. Paul here, in calling them to live worthy, is calling them to live like citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Philippi is a, a Roman colony, but he's not talking about their, their Roman citizenship. He's talking about their citizenship in Christ's kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. You can look ahead to, to chapter 3, verse 20, where he says there, Our citizenship is in heaven. Imagine if, if you had, had dual citizenship. But that, that second citizenship is just because you, you got a good job in this foreign land. It's not home. You'll leave it one day when you retire. Well, that's our citizenship in America or whatever passport you hold. This world is not our home. This citizenship will end. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul was a Roman citizen, but, but he lived as a citizen of heaven. His allegiance was not to Caesar. He didn't stop preaching the gospel because Caesar said so. No, no, his allegiance was to Jesus. He continues there at the end of, of chapter 1 to acknowledge that they have, have opponents, but not to be frightened of them. That opposition in, in there in, in verse 29 has been granted to them by, by God, right? They have been granted not only to, to believe, but to, to suffer for His sake. I wonder, were you here for our recent study of Matthew 10, Jesus' instruction to His disciples? You might remember the, the story we told them of, of Polycarp. It's the same thing we hear in, in Philippians, right? Persecution is, is not strange for a Christian. It's been granted to them by God, along with faith. No, suffering is the birthright of the Christian, granted to you by God. Well, as an example of this, this life worthy of the gospel, he appeals to none other than Jesus Christ himself. We're going to read what might be the apex of this letter, Christ's example of humility, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So read with me. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a wonderful picture of of Jesus, our exalted Savior. Paul begins this section with some rhetorical questions, right? Yes, there is encouragement and comfort and so on. So the call from Paul is to complete his joy by being unified. Unity of of mind and of love in verse 2. Our year of COVID may have inadvertently made it a bit easy for us to think of our, our own interests first. Isolation tends to do that. But this is Paul's vision for the church. Let me reread verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can you imagine a society like this? Where every member of that society mutually considered others as more significant. Each looking to the interests of others. Well, that's a society that should mark the church. It's what the church should look like. I wonder, whose interests do you think should rule in the church? Whose interests do you think should rule in the church? Who is the most significant person here? Well, for Paul, the answer is never mine and me. And that's true for every person. And why? How? That's, that's totally unlike our nature. Christianity is, is not human nature with some faith sprinkled on top. It's a, it's a totally new nature. A nature given to us by God in our rebirth, in the, the pattern of Jesus. So Paul roots these radical commands in verses 3 and 4 in the example of Jesus. Verses 5 through 11 show that the humility Paul is calling us to is exactly how Jesus lived. These verses are the the highest heights of the, the glorious humility and selfless love of our Savior. Look again at, at verse 6. Jesus was in the, the form of God. He had the, the very nature of God, equal with God. But he did not consider that something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, in verse 7, he, he emptied himself. He willingly added to his glorious divine nature a real human nature. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is not some new compound, a mixture of some divine and some man. No, he is both perfectly united in one person. But Jesus didn't come as as royalty, demanding people grovel at his feet. No, he was born in a manger. He lived homeless. He was a servant. Friends, the one true and glorious God, the maker, preserver, and ruler of all things, having in and of himself all perfections, and being holy and infinite in them all, the one to whom all creatures owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience that springs from faith, this God 
took on our nature as a servant. And most amazing of all in verse 8, this God and man humbled himself even more by dying. And not just dying, but dying the gruesome and shameful death on a cross. And that not because he deserved it, but because we deserve it. You see, the cross is not just an example of how much God loves us. It is, in fact, Jesus suffering what we deserve for our sins. Our rebellion and sin against God deserves His his holy, His good indignation. But instead of suffering that in ourselves, God poured out that anger on Jesus Christ. Our punishment, what we deserve, has been paid by Christ. So now by trusting in Jesus, by turning away from our sins, we can receive forgiveness and eternal life and joy in Christ. This is the example of the love and humility of our Savior. Verses 6 through 8 are like the downward slope of a V. Verses 9 and 11 through 11 are the ascent on the other side Jesus descends in humility, but because of his obedience in death, God has exalted him. One day, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, all to the glory of the Father. Jesus is above all. This is the exalted Son of Man that we read of in in Daniel 7. All people serving him. And in everything everlasting dominion. Well, the point, church, why does Paul tell us of this glorious Savior? If God Himself, who is rightly self centered, could live with this kind of humility, can't you? Paul knows that, that guilt and shame won't humble Christians. He knows that only a true sight of Christ's humility with the eyes of faith will humble us. Before Christ is our example, something we do, it is news, something we hear and believe. But, but now the, the pattern of Jesus' life is, is Paul's and ours. Humbling, serving, suffering, dying, And then being raised, exalted. First the cross, then the crown. Christians, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It is thinking of Jesus more. And having this mind, according to verse 5. The mind of Jesus. And if we want to be a church, a community marked by this kind of humility, of love of others, it is only possible by Jesus and is evidence of Jesus in our midst. He is the pattern, we the imprint. And and remember, this this all in chapter 2 is is Paul's exhortation to joyfully stand with Christ. We stand with him in the church by being humble like him. And so, 
After pointing to Jesus, our example, in verses 12 and 13, Paul calls us to therefore work out our salvation. He's calling us again to to progress, knowing in in verse 13 that that it's God who works in us, both willing and working. This is what we saw in in chapter 1, verse 6. God sees to it that, that his work is completed. When we work, it is God working in us. One way we show our humility in verse 14 and and falling is not to grumble and complain. You know, Paul had had great reason to grumble. Christ had even greater reason to complain. You might too. But Paul says it has no place in the children of God. So, So what are you tempted to grumble about? This week, make a conscience effort to give thanks instead. In verses 17 and 18, Paul gives us a, a metaphor of, of suffering. It's as if, if, if Paul is, is the drink offering being poured out on the altar to God. It's a metaphor for his, his death. He has martyrdom on the mind. But he knows that his offering would be combined with, with theirs, their offering of faith. Even so, he says, I am glad and rejoice, and you should be glad and rejoice. In the the last part of the chapter, Paul gives us two examples, two positive examples of partners who who joyfully stand with Christ, with with the humility of of their example, Jesus. He points to Timothy, starting in verse 19, and then uh, Epaphroditus in in verse 25. It it seems that that Timothy is with him in Rome, and and Paul wants to send him to, to Philippi to get more news. But, but Timothy is exactly what he has commended earlier. I hope you still have your Bibles open. Look at, at verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father he has served me in the gospel. He says, All others have seek their own interests, but not Timothy. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Who's that sound like? Well, it sounds like someone who, back from verse 4, looks to the interests of others. Paul commending Timothy's example. Or take Epaphroditus. He was the messenger who brought the Philippians' gifts to Paul in Rome. And in the process, he got, he got deathly ill. And Paul now wants to, to send him back again for their joy. But, but look at, at verse... Sorry, at verse... <clears throat> 29. He says, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Right? We honor such men because they look like Christ. He was someone who is humble to the point of death. Like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, joyfully stand with Christ. He is the pattern. So we are to be immovable and unified. We are to humbly partner together with joy in Christ for mutual progress in the gospel. But of course, Paul is not done with Christ. After commending his example in chapter 2, he's going to show us Christ's sufficiency for righteousness and therefore more reason to be singularly devoted to Christ. So we're going to look at at chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and our third point, joyful sufficiency of Christ. Read with me chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming life him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Well, here we have some of the headlines of, of Paul's biography. But, but first, the command in, in verse 1. Rejoice. He has no trouble writing it again. It's, it's safe. It says we're to rejoice in the Lord, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances. Paul warns of some opponents who put confidence in the flesh. They trusted in their righteousness, that it came from their work, like circumcision, But Paul goes on to say that that if they had reason for confidence in the flesh, he had even more. He had every advantage that the flesh could offer. We see in this list here that that he had the religious advantage. He he was circumcised on the eighth day. He had the ethnic advantage. He was a a Hebrew of Hebrews. Or sorry, of the people of Israel. He had the, the ancestral advantage. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had the cultural advantage, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the educational advantage. He was a Pharisee. He had the personality advantage. He was a zealous persecutor of the church. And he had the moral advantage, blameless under the law. But with all those advantages, what did he do? Well, verse 8, whatever gain I had, he counted them as loss. They're nothing. He counts them as as rubbish. He suffered their loss to gain Christ. Everything we have or can offer adds nothing. It adds the value of, of trash. Our advantages do not give us righteousness. Righteousness does not come from the law, but only through faith in Christ Jesus. We add nothing of value to salvation. So, Stafford Baptist, what is worthy compared to knowing Christ? If you put Christ on one side of the scale and with him resurrection and suffering, what could possibly move the scale on the other side? Hear Paul again. I count everything as loss, loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
Paul puts no confidence in the flesh for right standing with God. No confidence in anything but Jesus. And Paul isn't here denigrating everything else. He's just saying that that Jesus is in a class by himself. When compared to Jesus, nothing, nothing holds water. So friends, no one, nothing in all of creation matches the joy of knowing Christ. It's what you were made for, of having a personal relationship with him and having the confidence of righteousness from our glorious Savior. Seriously, right now, think of of the best thing in the world in your judgment. Chocolate, roller coasters, naps, whatever it is, consider why is it the best thing? Why is it so amazing? Now, in your mind, move it to the negative column of the ledger. Christ is is far better. He is surpassing in his value. Nothing can even compare. As amazing as that is, Christ is infinitely better. Church, we should be marked by a mutual joy in the sufficiency of Christ. With him, what else could we desire? Without him, nothing else can satisfy. Christ is so worthy that Paul wants us to press in more and more. Read verse 12 with me of chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Even the lofty apostle did not consider himself perfect. He, He wouldn't be finished until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul strains forward to what lies ahead. And he commends this way of thinking to to all the mature. A sign of Christian maturity and a healthy church is not only recognition of our need for growth, but a vigorous pursuit of it. There should be no stagnant Christian as if they've already attained everything. If you feel like you are stagnant, if you, you need help pressing on, I'd love to talk to you about how your, your pastors can help. That's what we're here for, to equip for ministry until we all attain maturity. But, but it's not just pastors. It's, it's every Christian's job to help one another. Look with me at, at chapter 3, verse 17. Paul writes to the church, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Yes, Paul is our example. We should imitate him. But note too, we are to watch all those who also follow his example. Did you know? You too, as you imitate Paul, who imitates Christ, are to be an example. What would happen if the whole church followed your example this week in loving God? What if everybody in the church would be like you in the way that you share the gospel with others? What if we all prayed like you, spent our money like you, served the church like you, loved our families like you? Would the church be be healthier or not? More like Christ or not? 
It's a sobering thought. But Paul is calling us all to follow models and ourselves be models worthy of imitation. Since Christ is our sufficient righteousness, we press on toward mutual progress in the gospel, modeling and following models. In the next verse, he warns of some, some bad examples to be avoided and, and concludes on the sufficiency of Christ by, by reminding us that, that ultimately it is Christ who will transform us. Read with me chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, the last two verses of the chapter. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him to, be, to subject all things to himself. Again, we are citizens of heaven. Our hope is, is not as citizens of, of this world. We await a Savior not from this world, but, but from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wonder, what, what Lord are you waiting for, Christian? A new governor? A new president? false hope all other things Paul writes all authorities will be subjected to Jesus and so he is our sufficiency as much as we follow good examples and aim to be a good example to others it is only Jesus who will finally transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body as much as we press on for progress, final glory will not come by our power, by our efforts, but the power of Jesus Christ at his return. Church, rejoice, have joy in the sufficiency of Jesus for righteousness and here for final glory, perfection, not by your efforts, but by Christ's power. And in his sufficiency, we have finally strength. So read with me chapter 4, verse 1, in our fourth point, joyful strength of Christ. Joyful strength of Christ. Paul writes, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus, like this in the Lord, my beloved. It sounds a bit like what we read in chapter 1, verse 27, to stand firm. He's concluded his argument He's getting to his final encouragements to strengthen the church. We won't read it, but, but first in verses 2 and 3, there's some conflict in the church, probably reported to him by Epaphroditus. And that conflict threatens the unity that they're called to. So Paul calls these two women who have labored with him side by side in the gospel to be reconciled with the help of a, a true compassion, companion, a, a third party. The church is, is no place for unreconciled conflict. Some of the best verses in the book are in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Read those with me. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What we have there in verse 4, more commands to rejoice in the Lord. And now he adds, always, again rejoice. 
especially in, in suffering, we might be anxious, worried for our future. But do you know what Acts 16 reports that Paul was doing at midnight in the Philippian jail? Well, along with singing hymns, he was, he was praying. Anxieties are fears for the future that, that threaten our present joy. Christians are to deal with these anxieties by, by trusting those concerns to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And the promise in verse 7, He will give us peace in the place of anxiety. A key to a lifetime of joy is a lifetime of prayer because of a lifetime of concerns. And in verses 8 and 9, more promises of peace Now by filling our minds with what is honorable and pure, instead of meditating on your anxieties, calling to mind all that is true and lovely and thinking about those things. And again, no surprise, verse 10, again Paul rejoices. Now because that their concern for him was was revived in the form of this gift, but it it wasn't because of his need. No, he he was content Read with me verses 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here, Paul uses... The, the term that I put in our fo- fourth point, joyful strength of Christ. He says there in verse 13, it's, it's Christ who strengthens us so that we can do all things. Of course, chapter 4, verse 13 is a, a favorite verse for athletes after they, they score the winning touchdown. But that's not his, his point. His point is that he has learned to, to be content. And that contentment is through the strength Jesus gives To content means to be happy and happy with whatever circumstances. Here he points to the circumstances of of plenty and hunger. God doesn't promise to us that that he's going to give us the strength to hit the buzzer beater. No, he is promising strength to endure in joy every trial in adversity and prosperity. Happiness for a lifetime in Christ by his strength, whatever the circumstances. In the last section of his letter, starting in verse 14, he returns to their gift. In verse 15, he says that they've been partners in giving ever since he left their city. You know, prisoners in the time had to finance their own imprisonment, so so this gift is is quite important. But again, their their generosity is not about what he gets. So far from being self-centered, even in the gift he receives, he's thinking about how it's good for them. He's thinking of the interests of others. You see in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Brothers and sisters, generosity is not just for the needs of others, but for the good of the giver. And God will certainly provide all that we need according to the riches of his glory. I'm thankful that now back in our main hall, we have the opportunity to pass the plate as a part of our our worship service. Because what what Paul says here, giving to the cause of the gospel, he says, is a sacrifice pleasing and acceptable to God. 
Giving is an act of Christian worship. So, so what would you say now? If you want a lifetime of happiness, fill in the blank. Joy is the side effect of our dedication to a cause greater than ourselves, a byproduct of our surrender to a person other than ourselves. Joy isn't found in pursuing your own interests, but, but those of others, those of Jesus. Joy is, is commanded by God, and God gives the strength for what He commands. He works in us. He completes what He began. Joy comes in answer to prayer and motivates our progress and partnership in the gospel. And all this in Christ, the source of our joy, our humble, obedient exalted Savior, our only confidence for righteousness, the unsurpassed treasure of our lives. Church, humbly partner together with joy in Christ for mutual progress in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, it is our joy to know Christ this morning. Lord, that you have been kind to us to bring us from death to life in Christ. That you have given us faith and righteousness in him. And with him the gift of a joy that endures in all of life's circumstances. Father, we pray that we would humble ourselves like Christ. That we would see his example and humbly partner together. Father, with a joy that is in Christ Lord, for mutual progress in this gospel. Lord, that we work together as a church, as the community, the body of Christ, seeking not our own interests. Lord, counting others more significant than ourselves. Lord, so that Christ would be honored. We pray this all in His glorious name. Amen.